Hi folks and welcome to another episode of the Leadership Tales podcast. Today I'm joined by a lovely gentleman, Stephen Crawford. He runs a podcast called Experienced Leadership that I was a guest on. He's also a coach, speaker, and he's CEO of a Minneapolis-based leadership coaching firm. So he's going to take us through his journey uh, to getting to where he is, journey that's uh, taken many challenges to overcome. Um, but he, he comes from a place of real value set, um, and his whole focus is how he gets business leaders to, to come to a place of restructuring their business out of chaos and therefore into clarity. So you'll hear a story today about how he's come to do that. He's also got a new book, Too Stupid to Fail, which is coming out now. So uh, it's a chance for you to hear his story. Looking forward to the conversation. I'm delighted to be joined by a wonderful guy, Dr. Stephen Crawford from the U.S. Stephen and I were talking a while ago on his podcast, and a lot of the times this happens, Stephen, isn't it, that we get a reciprocal conversation going because your background is fascinating. And even though it was all, particularly all about me the last time, I'd love it to be all about you today. So welcome, sir. <laughs> well, I, pre- I appreciate that. Thanks so much. Great to be here. Good. And for those listening, Tell, me, tell us a bit about yourself and your background. I'd love to hear your story. I guess classic story in, in, on the south side of Chicago. Uh, it's inundated with poverty. If anybody knows the history of the uh, uh, Chicago and the United States, it was, you know, uh, Dr. King went to, and lived there for three years. Uh, Dr. Mm. Martin Luther King Jr., who uh, led the civil rights movement in, in the United States, uh, he lived there for three years uh, dealing with urban poverty uh, mm. because uh, when they built the highways, they separated Uh, They went through all of the uh, black communities that had been established and were well done, but the highways tore them down uh, through eminent domain, uh, and they put them in buildings uh, that we now call projects Mm -hmm. that uh, forced people to live, probably 20, 25,000 people now living in a six to eight block radius and all living in buildings on top of each other. And so sucked out all of the opportunity, the jobs, everything out of those communities. And so Dr. King was kind of moving in that. So I grew up in uh, one of those neighborhoods. And so, you know, my, my grandfather was a Methodist pastor and, mm. uh, you know, you know, he was a big Wesley guy. So John Wesley from England, you know, who yeah. uh, was very socially active, mentored a lot of the people that led the abolitionist movement here in England. Mm-hmm. And so uh, he was, and my grandfather was a historian too. So, so it's, you know, uh, he, he was, he was big on Wesley, big on community involvement and activation and really, really kind of led a process in which he educated us that we needed to be different than our circumstance. So just because we were surrounded by poverty. And so as an entrepreneur as well, he was a construction, he built houses by hand, <laughs> built buildings, he had, he had five sons. So that helped, that helped. And you know, I grew up in an environment where, you know, I was poor, black, but I didn't know it uh, mm. because we had a grandfather who basically commended us to uh, be the best that we could be and, and really spoke to our potential and not to our circumstance. And so uh, I grew up with a different belief system uh, than most of my friends around me or the people that or the schools that I participated in. And, and as I went to college, I moved to Minnesota. I had no idea that I was going in for the ride of my life. Uh, I start took urban studies because I start to see systematically how broken communities were not poor in resource economically because mm-hmm. uh, there were tons of chain stores and liquor stores and tobacco shops and all those other things that were very prevalent in the community. 
Well, the problem wasn't the, the amount of resources is the way they were allocated and the way they were distributed and the poverty. So I took urban studies in order to try to find out how to make a difference. And right out of college, my professor who led the program decided that he wanted to, <laughs> he, he wanted, he said, you talk really well. I want mm-hmm. you to participate in this program that we're launching. And the pharmaceutical company had launched a program with this question. If we didn't go into urban communities looking at deficits, and we look at went into assets. What would that mean? And uh, within three years of working in that program, I realized this was kind of a life's calling. <laughs> and I really just began. I, I became the director, and we grew that organization from initially uh, around five or six employees to uh, well over sixty. And we were going into uh, other nonprofits, doing leadership planning, strategic ideation, and launches, and really saying, "What if we took an asset-based approach to urban mm-hmm. communities?" in order to really develop them and cultivate leaders within them. And so we were uh, making a big dent. And then that little ripple in the economy in 2008 called the pharmaceutical company to pull back the resources. <laughs> There's a lot that everybody has in their 2008 calendar that had a big yeah. impact on them. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. For, for us, it was fun, though. They, they flew us down to Indiana, that were the uh, Indiana University, uh, yep. on campus. Uh, and they, they basically set us around and they were just, I mean, they had asked us to send our best case studies and stories mm-hmm. uh, between us and many of the other uh, programs that they had funded. And and the guy that was just leading the program was just, he was just crying as he was reading kind of the case studies. And we're just excited because we're thinking we're about to get more money. And uh, he said, great news. We're really proud of you. Mm-hmm. And we really believe that you guys have de- developed to the point where you can sustain yourself. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so go out there and get them. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah so, so it was it, it was it was a painful story, but it also taught me something that uh, about creativity, ingenuity, and and you know because at that time in 2008, I was probably in the third year of my doctoral program, and I was studying leadership, transformational leadership uh, was kind of the focus. Uh, of a lot of the research and the, that I was doing and trying to bring that to br- build holistic uh, urban transformation to cities. And we get to travel all over the world because it was a global program. So going to nice. uh, Mumbai, Hy- Hyderabad, uh, uh, we went to uh, Jordan, uh, Amman, and we went to Kuala Lumpur, uh, different mm-hmm. cities around the globe just to really explore this. And it was fascinating that I saw the opportunity uh, to be in many of these uh, impoverished countries, that the ingenuity and the creativity behind entrepreneurship uh, was really what sparked economic development. And Mm -hmm. so I bought into that as an idea and started to do consulting alongside of the nonprofit. And three years later, when the board, uh, as they say, promoted me to customer, they they, they dissolved the organization. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, you know, and he says, we we, we promote you to pursue your own endeavors. Uh, (laughs) There's a positive message. (laughs) (laughs) And so uh, I I went full time in this uh, in this endeavor to really, really uh, ignite the heart of entrepreneurs, not just to be incredibly effective through solid strategy and good leadership, but also to align them with their missional values and to see what is the good they can do. Because And I, I, I got sick of asking for permission to do good. And I really got so fed up with that, that I, I just, I created a, um, a for-profit initiative that says, I'm going to do all the good I want to do, but not because I need to beg for someone's dollars or permission. I'm going to do it because I choose to do it. And I'm going to ignite other entrepreneurs to think this way. And that's Mm -hmm. what we've been doing uh, for the last 
10 years or so. We've grown. Our team has had an impact at aligning our companies with missional values and really helping them build a successful, profitable business. I met with a, uh, a client of mine that's been a client for, oh, since, oh man, uh, since 2011. So about yeah. 10 years. And we were doing a training for his team, uh, his leadership team. And one of the things I challenged him on, I says, until we get richer, we can't do better uh, yeah. because he's a highly uh, involved in the community. And I said, we can't do good at the jeopardize becoming incredibly successful because if we're more successful, the better we can do. And we have to attach doing good and be having a thriving economic palette to be able to pull those things together. And so yeah. we're driven to make our clients successful. On average, our clients are doing uh, for the small business portion. Uh, it's a little shifts the bigger business you get, but the smaller businesses yeah. that we work with, you know, between one to 15 million are doing somewhere between 67 uh, to 70% per year over year increasing in their net profit and their bottom line. So that's, that's kind of a thing we're kind of proud of. So yeah. that's, that's a long background, but boy, I tell you. Oh, it's great. <laughs> I mean, we could have about five podcasts on that, just let alone that. So I want to dig into a few things as you and I have a similar background. I had a professor of theology as a grandfather, church of Scotland minister, and therefore, you know, that that's where I got a lot of my belief systems in there. And one of those was about going out and, mission work and doing the other thing in there. But what I call mission work was helping others and, you know, doing it, paying it forward to them. But I'm interested in tying that into this bit that you were talking about later on. You know, I'm hearing it as profit equals freedom. Yeah. For people, you know, if the, if the palate is richer, then we can, we can reinvest. And therefore the two compliments you got one, which was, you know, you're now self-sustaining. So great. We don't need to give you any money, which is a bit of a kicker at the time mm -hmm. is one of those models and almost teachable points of view that you drive through all of your work. Tell us how you get leaders to do that. Cause I, I think a lot of leaders are basking in the corporate world who sit there with budgets provided for them. And they don't really fundamentally understand how a business works. Yeah. So what's your yeah, thoughts? well, well, first you have to lie to them. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> but 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 in truth, you know, you in order to earn the right to get them what they need, you have to sell them what they want. And I, I that's just a reality. Most leaders don't know what they need. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think they are they think they need something until they realize that that thing that they want doesn't really solve the problem. So, uh, so it's, it's, it is sort of a two-step, you know, we have to lay out a, a reality that's saying, all right, so you think you want higher profits or, or more, more business, but if we got you more business with your high turnover rate, with your uh, low conversion rate, with your inconsistent service, mm -hmm. with your broken systems, if we just get you more business, it'll only magnify your problem. So a lot of times we are selling people on the idea that, hey, we're going to evaluate your seven pillars between lead generation, mm -hmm. lead conversion, yeah. client fulfillment. We look at systems and accountability management, and we look at how they develop their team, their financials, and their leadership. Mm -hmm. And so where I know that eventually we're going to eventually get back to is leadership. I know mm -hmm. that. Yep. But we don't start there. Most people yeah. say, I, want, I need more leads. If I just had more leads, it would solve all my problems. So we, okay, let's start a conversation. Let's evaluate your marketing and what you're doing there. And we will. And we'll legitimately do that. And uh, sometimes it'll be two or three quarters because we operate in 90-day 
uh, windows. It'll be two or three quarters where all their goals around getting more business. And over time, we'll just continue as we're coaching them to ask better questions and, and to really refine what they really want. And when they really figure out that what they need to do is build a solid foundation of leadership within their organization, uh, and you won't have until you become. And so the expectation that they can get something without changing who they are. Uh, I challenged a gentleman yesterday, him and a business partner have a thriving business. Uh, it has done 400% what it did when they bought it from the previous owner uh, in just under two and a half years. I mean, it is incredible. It's like a skyrocket, uh, but he is chronically dissatisfied mm. and uh, kind of walking in kind of a depressive state uh, when things are going tough. And he's overwhelmingly joyful and gleeful <laughs> when things are going well. Yeah. And I was challenging him on the stabilizing himself as a leader. And I said, you want to, you think you want to get to a place where you can coast, but I can promise you this as a world, as, as an entrepreneur myself and someone who's worked with uh, hundreds of entrepreneurs over the last dozen or more years, I said, I can promise you this an entrepreneur never coast. Mm -hmm. Yep. It is a consistent appetite that needs to grow and get more. You're waiting to get there. There is never coming. What you and so it's like a so when you walk into chaos, you're surprised by it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I agree. And I said, so what we need to do is we need to figure out how to calm the storm. Yeah. Like on the inside with the expectation that it'll never be calm on the outside. No. You're the calm. And we have to shift that. And I said, and until you become who you need to be, you never have what you need to have. But the question you have to ask yourself is, do you have a commitment to be so a strong commitment to being to, to who you are that mm. you're unwilling to become who you need to be, to have the business that you want to have? Yeah. And so that's, I, I think that's at the heart of it. We get to the, you know, the, the soft gooey center, as they say, uh, of leadership, mm. uh, which is really, really the hard skills to develop because it takes courage yeah. Uh, one of our core values is courage because you have to have courage to walk and live in vulnerability, to actually develop the strength to move in, a, in an environment that really is consistently producing for you. So that's how we invite them in. So we, it is kind of a, uh, a bait and switch. We do not completely, but you know, we do say to them, Hey, yes, we can help you get what you you want. Yep. What we don't tell them is the work that it's going to take to get there if, or they might never sign on. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think it's a, an easy one because I think a lot of times leadership and leaders, they don't really fully understand. And I almost want to go back to your asset-based urban development because it's similar to that, really. It's, it's about getting systems and structures in place to make yourself sustainable and looking at all of those systems as interdependent. So your sales to your leads, to your fulfillment, your customer service, to your... Um, but that all flows from this principle about the, the leader being the servant to all of those systems and, and keeping them. In the, and I know you're a big uh, fan of habits and practices and rituals yes. uh, in there, but that's where we're coming to. So I love your analogy about calming the storm because we talk about confidence, conviction, connection, that calming the storm is is where does the leadership, where does the rock come from to go to a, a biblical reference when all around is, is crashing against it? So I, I love that. I want to uh, just explore a couple of things because I, I think there's a lot to be learned vice versa from the urban leadership and the, mm -hmm. you know, the upbringing that you had in that because grit for me is sometimes missing, but mm -hmm. actually the experimentally immersion of that experience you had growing up particularly with the father and both sons of the grandfather you had allowed you to be more resilient in some ways, but mm -hmm. there must've been times where inside your, 
your calming in the storm is not happening. You are, you know, treading mm-hmm. water heavily. Well, tell me about those times. Yeah. Well, honestly, you know, what really stands out as you say that um, I grew up with a belief that was incorrect uh, mm-hmm. because because my father, my grandfather was heavy into education. Right. Uh, I, I, I did believe that that was a, 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 a solution. Mm-hmm. And so I remember I moved to Costa Rica for a year on, on sabbatical from the nonprofit. I graduated with my master's degree and I flew flew down to Costa Rica and I was trying to learn Spanish because I said, if I'm going to be affected in an urban area, I want to at least be able to be conversational in Spanish. And I was endorsed by the board. They, they gave me a stipend, you know, allowed me to, to do that. And I went down there and there's three languages you should all learn if you're going to work in urban development. Uh, it's uh, Mandarin, English, and Spanish. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, you, you got most of the world covered if you can handle those three. But, um, you know, I came back and uh, they had changed leadership. So although that they, they moved me out of the director position, they said, we'll, we'll, we'll revisit that when you come back, see where we are. And they had a different leader in the organization. Then I, a university offered me a job, had offered me a job before I left. And their endowment was taken away uh, for that program because mm-hmm. it was given by a person who, uh, end up going to jail for embezzlement. No. <laughs> uh, and they had to, he had given them a ton, ton of buildings as well that he had given them for a dollar. And mm-hmm. uh, the government came back and said, oh, no, you have to pay full retail for that. Where well, they were over a million and a half into the renovation of those buildings. So all doors had closed for me. Yeah. And here I am, master's degree, uh, first year doctoral program. And uh, back then, we, uh, we would go through newspapers. Uh, maybe your younger audience doesn't uh, understand what a periodical is, but there used to be a help wanted section <laughs> mm, yeah. uh, where you look for jobs. And I, I guess I was—I felt I was a likable person. So I went to a car dealership and I had, had some experience in sales because uh, mm-hmm. working for a nonprofit, you always had a side hustle. I mean, it's, you know, it's not enough to pay the bills. Yeah. Uh, so I went to a car dealership. And I hated it. Uh, they were cheating people. They were lying to people. <laughs> mm. And I was just, I, I couldn't believe it. And I literally went to a Barnes Noble bookstore during all my lunch breaks and I would read. I'm like, how am I stuck yeah. when everybody else is moving forward? And so I'm sitting there reading and I grabbed out my very large laptop computer for 2006. It was a pretty big chunk of thing. Break. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And I started writing a book mm. because, uh, which I just finished, by the way, We're, it'll be published later this fall, which I'm happy about. Thank you. It's called Too Stupid to Fail. Mm. And I realized that my heightened emotional, my EQ was in many cases de- debilitating when it came to success. Mm. I had taken other people's cues and waited for other people's permission too long as far as being a controlling element in my life. Yep. And I put that together that most of my friends that were significantly successful either had no high school education, mm. one year of college, or barely graduated high school, and yeah. they were not educated, they were, but they, that they were resilient. And so mm. when you talk about that resilience, I put the pattern together because uh, I'm a patterns person. That's, yeah. that's, that's what I do. I see systems. I see patterns. I make connections. And I saw that when they are turned down their natural normal response is okay <laughs> yeah and they almost act like they don't hear you when you tell them no mm, yeah 
And my EQ sensibilities would always kind of say, okay, I don't want to rock the horse. I don't want to tilt it. Cause I was told that was the right, the respectful way. And I had to learn what it took to develop the, to cultivate the emotional fortitude. And and so the, originally the, I called the book resilience. Then uh, there was uh, some lady who wrote a book called resilience. And I said, well, because that was uh, obviously, that was 2006, 2007, I believe her book came out, Resilience. Uh, Elizabeth Edwards, uh, mm-hmm. uh, who passed away now, but her her husband was Jonathan Edwards, a politician in America. And so she wrote a book. Over, I said, I don't want to it after that. And I just kept, so I held on to this, How do, what, what do I call it? And it was mm-hmm. when the banking industry began to collapse and they said, too big to fail. Mm-hmm. I said, what makes us, they, they're immune to failure. And I'm going through this. And so in 2009, I changed the title to too stupid to fail. And it's been that way ever since. And it has been evidenced by everybody that I've interviewed, people that I've met with. Uh, one of my uh, mentor does not have a high school diploma. One of my closest mentors. And uh, I've been doing some projects and worked with him lately. And uh, he's grown companies uh, to well over a billion dollars now in mm-hmm. revenue. And he's just, he, he, he's brilliant, but he doesn't understand the word no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. It's it's fast, and I, I love that too. Stupid to fail because there's there's sometimes you look at people, and particularly, I mean, if you look in the UK around sales, then we don't have a sales culture in the UK. Um, not like the US, where there is a you know, I'm going to go at it. I'm going to go at it. But somebody said the other day, and I, you know, there was a, a lovely statement about the American. I'm a big fan. Lived there. But they said that, you know, if if you come at us as America, we will get together and fight you. Yeah. And there's a, a thing that you get. But the rest of the time, if nobody's against us, then we're fighting each other. So there's a there's almost a natural inbred ability to just fight. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, and to work that way, which which I loved as an analogy, because, you know, if you could actually engender that internally to to shift your systems then you know the chicago that you grew up and other things just wouldn't be there but but there is a natural reaction which is almost too stupid to fail or individualistic sometimes versus altruistic yeah Yeah. right well and and when we when we do integral research you know uh we we consider the resources uh and this i know this goes back to my doctoral work but when you do integral research you, you you consider the northern rational yeah. Uh, aspects. Uh, so when we, when we're, you know, we contextualize that or the Western pragmatic, uh, yeah. Westerns are very pragmatic and we're looking at what works. What does it do? Uh, that's why meditation is so difficult for Americans. Yeah. <laughs> 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 we're sitting there, wait, what does this do? What does this do? Hasn't happened yet. Nothing's changing. Yep. Nope. 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 <laughs> Let's bring the new so, thing in. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So there, 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 there's an incestus with impatience, but you know, I, I think that gruff on the outside mm. is is also uh, telling of a lot of weaknesses and mm. uh, on the inside. I think there's there, there's some some fracture internally. I think most people are trained and taught to be sheep, to follow the rules. Our leadership structures that we we amplify and look after, our home systems. We we create a mental model of leadership with mm. the home. Then we create a new one uh, as we go into uh, schooling and, and figuring out those things. And then we, uh, whether it's our first job or education or military or what have you, we create different, these different mental models of leadership. Mm. And those things for us establish for us that we are to be led. We are waiting on something. Yeah, We're waiting for other people to do something, say something in order to give us permission. Most leaders that I work with they don't lack an intelligence. As a matter of fact, so many of them are smarter than I am. Yeah. They're waiting on permission. 
to do what they know to do right. And as, as coaches, as leaders, cultivating that inner confidence in that. And so I think that some people uh, grow up in environments where they naturally develop this internal fortitude, this thick layer of heart skin, so to speak, mm-hmm. where they can break through. Uh, but for many of us, I, and I know I was one of them, I had to go through a process of intentionally, uh, it's like working a muscle, mm-hmm. learning how to build that strength. And that does not happen overnight. It happens through a process. Yeah. And, and in some ways, it goes back to Taleb's view on anti-fragile, you know, the, and actually the new definition of resilience, which is that uh, it's the ability to thrive in chaos. Unless mm-hmm. we're stretching ourselves out of normality and stretching ourselves to build that that heart muscle that, that gives us that, then when it comes to it, we tend to just flop. We go over or we mental health suffers or something in there. So as leaders, we've got to do that ourselves. So what? tell us more about the book then. What's in the book that uh, readers would listen to or would read? Yeah, so I, and, and absolutely. And uh, we don't have the Amazon page up yet. I know, I see, I know. We're, see, we're, uh, but um, we're, we're, we're in the final stage of the editorial. I didn't realize that some of the people that I quoted, the editors were saying, no, you can't have those people there. They have protected speech. And I said, oh, my goodness. So we're still navigating through some of the I know that. <laughs> uh, na- na- nastiness of, of some of those things. But what, what what it really boils down to is, that, and, and I, I use my journey as a template, but it, it's about, you know, we have the, the word re, uh, which is a grammatical construct that uh, means to do again. So mm-hmm. uh, you repeat. Uh, it means to repeat again, right? No. And so the, the grammatical re- uh, construct re means to happen again. And so the, we break into the book into three sections. Uh, well, there's the introduction uh, where we talk about rebooting and getting a, a heart, essentially a heart reset. And then we talk about reframing our, our, our perspective on what winning and failing and the whole growth mindset actually is. So there has to be a reframe. But yeah. once we do that, then we have three chapters that deal with the heart because first we've got to develop that emotional Muscle. I'm sorry. The we start with the mind. Uh, the first thing is to recognize, to recognize, to to really bring it to 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 build the mental muscles around what needs to be done. Yep. Uh, and then it's the the issues of the heart. Uh, we have three chapters centered on all with the first letters R E. And then we talk about the hands. What do we must do? And the biggest thing that I really really found myself uh, getting lost in was the chapter uh, of the heart called uh, recreate. Mm. Uh, because of the play on words where you can have recreate, which is to recreate yourself. And this idea that human beings are perfectly able to create anything. I know there was uh, Thomas Trower in the early, you know, really, really old book, but Thomas Trower talks about the essence of who we are is spirit. Therefore we create and we can't do otherwise. And so we're either creating the world we want or, we can't deny ourselves that that attribute. So if we're not mm-hmm. creating what we want, we're ultimately creating what we don't want. Don't want. Love it. And it's the essence of who we are that's creating. And it's the conditions that we put ourselves in. If you are angry, bitter, hostile, enraged, all those things, those things are destructive and uh, create a nasty a future for you. Mm. Uh, if you embrace life with gratitude and understand uh, being appreciative, you can actually recreate the world that you want. Uh, but first you have to create it, which is the first, it starts on the drawing board of the mind, and you have to recreate it. 
by the way you live. And so being able to do that. So just going through those different elements and they don't serve as a roadmap, more like checkpoints along the way. Nice. Yeah. Because uh, everybody's on a different map and a different journey. And so being able to have these checkpoints and you can't implement all nine immediately. There's something that you say, all right, we're recognized. So building habits of mindfulness and meditation and different things like that into your day, uh, being able to do those things. So it's important that the person puts the practices into place, but only in progression where they can develop themselves. I so, and, and I love the, the play on recreate or recreation because there is that concept that we hold, which is the playground. But if you think about it, it, it is your, you know, rather than if we don't create what we want, we create what we don't want. And therefore mm-hmm. the purposeful practice is the important bit. And I love the way starting with a mind first. So you get the purposeful direction and mm-hmm. then you start to recreate and recreation and playfulness in there to, to work it. Yeah, I love it. I also love the fact that the route maps and you know journeys are, are different. That's why you know the, the old adage about here's five things leaders do. Yeah, those five things that some leaders do, but you know, right? Are you that leader? Yeah. Are you lucky? Right. Are you exactly. taking a lottery? Yeah. <laughs> so in terms of your leadership journey, then yeah, where are you now, and and where's your purpose taking you to in the next few years? You know, I, I I'm so glad that we've been able to bring on some uh, additional coaches. We're 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 expanding. We're growing. We're helping leaders grow to within that realm. The relationship that I have with my mentor and other organizations of of speaking, I, I've had the privilege of uh, serving on several faculties of large organizations uh, that are training people to do what it is that I, we do. So mm-hmm. um, I, I guess my goal would be to. Uh, as we're we're looking at it, you know, I want our firm to have a significant impact, mm-hmm. but I never want to become the bottleneck within our firm. So I, I want us to continue to grow and build. Just having the privilege of being able to speak on larger platforms with uh, some of my mentors and different things like that that I've been invited to lately is kind of where next looks like for me. It's, it's uh, being able to build our firm, but also build it to the point where it's sustainable and I have the freedom and flexibility to, to uh to serve on some of these larger platforms that are speaking uh, to the masses as well. So if you go back to the the child that grew up in Chicago and one of the projects and you were to almost, you know, that classic, what's the letter you would write to them and tell them? What are the, you know, almost the three things you have in your mind that you've learned that you hold to that are strong points of view for you? The 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 crazy idea that no one's really looking at you. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so, so do what you need to do anyway, ask for less permission. Yep. And, uh, it would really be take good notes. Mm. Cause if, if there's a regret is that the lessons that I have learned haven't truly been enshrined and they come up almost as a later point. And it's just like, there's so much learning. And, uh, I remember there was a, there's an old, uh, Methodist. Well, he wasn't really a Methodist because the Methodist church hadn't been created yet, but, uh, mm-hmm. the old evangelist that uh, graduated from Oxford, mm-hmm. uh, George Whitfield, mm-hmm. uh, contemporary of John Wesley and, uh, George Whitfield would leave the, uh, the seminary, uh, and he couldn't afford to actually be a, uh, a student there, uh, because his parents had died. They owned the old bell Inn, and he would, uh, serve other people in order to go to school. Cause back then you could be a, a servant and not have to pay tuition. You just sit in class and still get a degree. So, hmm. uh, he would participate in the classes and, uh, 
he would go out and find ways to serve the poor and, mm. and really make a difference. And he really did some things. And he was a charismatic fellow where uh, he was a first American celebrity, as they say, mm. uh, where he came across to the new world and he would speak and tens of thousands of people would show up to hear him speak because of how charismatic he was. Mm. Uh, so in, incredible order. And uh, when I was reading about him, I realized that uh, one of the greatest things that was lost is we have no idea what he was thinking. People have written down notes of his recorded words, but he never wrote anything. Yeah. And you have John Wesley mm. who had all these writings. Yeah. And, you know, the world is different. Uh, people become uh, missional. Wilberforce, we know about the, the growth of what happened in, in England because of some of the things that were written uh, by these these revolutionaries that really wanted to make a difference uh, for social change within the world. So I, I, I regret not capturing all of it, but I'm committed from this point forward to be able to do that. I love that. So storytellers need good listeners who are good scribes who can craft the stories and tell the stories for future generations. I love that. Yeah. Dr. Stephen Crawford has just been a pleasure, sir. Thank you. Thank you for telling your story. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people will go a lot out of this and uh, from where you've come from and where you're now, that's a, a big journey that's paid it forward to a huge amount of people around around the America, but also now wider into the globe, So, which is great. So thank you, sir. Oh, where, my pleasure. Thank you. If people want to get in contact with you, hear more about you, where would they go to? Well, you know, find our, uh, the, the Experience Leadership Podcast is everywhere you download podcasts and experienceleadership.com, which is our website where we, we can be found. So we, uh, we, we, we love to serve. Uh, we love to build, whether it's entrepreneurs or, or just serving within companies that just want to make a difference. And so we love aligning with missional leaders. So if a missional leader wants to uh, learn a little bit more about that, by all means, they can reach out. Excellent, sir. Hope to have you more on the podcast when the book comes out and uh, people Absolutely. can get hold of that. So we're looking forward to that. October, we're hopefully so. October, <laughs> we're looking forward to <laughs> All right, talk to you soon. Take care. Cheers. That was Stephen Crawford. It's always fascinating to hear stories of people's journeys to be an entrepreneur, uh, to be a podcast host. Um, and to combine coaching podcast host and coaching supporting businesses. And I'm a big believer in the support that businesses need, startups need to to get them to sell to the next level uh, in their, their journey and how that uh, should be supported as we go through. And it goes back to my first exploration with design thinking when one of my colleagues was, was doing design thinking and working with a startup incubator in South Africa. So lovely to hear and lovely to have Stephen on the, the podcast. I'll look forward to welcoming you on another episode of the Leadership Tales podcast. <laughs>